Good afternoon and welcome to another Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. The year's drawing to a close, but plenty more on this program before we say goodbye to 2021. Today we refocus on the Park Hotel in Swanson Street, Carlton, which activists have renamed the Death Trap Prison. I'll be speaking with retired solicitor and asylum seeker activist Max Costello. The first in a series of reviews of recent books about Palestine and Palestinians. Today, the latest book by John Lyons, Dateline Jerusalem. And the reviewer is Jessica Morrison from APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, who are putting this series of reviews together. While the elite of the US eat praise on the recently departed Colin Powell, there are millions around the world who mark his death in a different way. Binoy Kampmark is a lecturer at RMIT University and he'll be speaking about his life and deeds. Part two of the recent history of Mexico with student, activist and broadcaster Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. And finally, the labelling as terrorists of Palestinian civil society and human rights groups and the worldwide condemnation, but not from our government. I'll be speaking with Rowan Araf from the Australian Centre for International Justice. But not to forget Mr Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, returned from his highly successful trip to Roma and Glasgow, where his plan, 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 the true blue Aussie way, technology not taxes, technology not taxes, went down like several million tonnes of coal, and the French Supremo confirmed his knowledge. I don't think I know arousing Scuttle Them's innate love of country as he defended us all against this slur francaise, telling us he is big enough to withstand the fact that he is a liar, or sorry, accused of being a liar, but True Blue Aussie is not big enough. He will not have these attacks on True Blue Aussie and True Blue Aussie people go undefended as he sprang to our common defence. Uh, but Emmanuel held to Scummo praised True Blue Aussie and the True Blue Aussie people other than just one True Blue Aussie person whom he said was an untrustworthy liar. And I will defend True Blue Aussie and True Blue Aussies against this outrageous attack on all of us. I am big enough, but the country isn't. Uh, but as I said, it wasn't on all of us, it was just on one person, Scummo. It is disingenuous of the French sore losers to suggest an attack on the big supremo is not an attack on all true blue Aussies. Scummo received welcome support U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world big supremo Joe Biden capital, who told Emmanuel Heltu he had been led to believe the French were being kept informed that they were about to be ratted on, leaving Scummo to extract himself from under a Roman bus. But here I think Scummo may have been telling the truth, as he retorted he had told Joe everything he had told Emmanuel Hill to. As it appears he told Emmanuel Hill to nothing, then let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he might not have been telling a lie. 
Then he released, or well leaked, private texts between Emmanuel Held to and himself, which should guarantee other supremos are open and honest in their communications with him, as open and honest as he was with Emmanuel Held too. Imagine the dilemma faced by our Pacific neighbours tossing up who to support, a neighbour who is intent on dispatching them into the briny, or a colonial fossil which brought them the delights of nuclear bombs and nuclear waste. Tough one. We could paraphrase the slur Francais as it applies to Scuttlebem. I don't think, I know, I know, I don't think. Scuttlebem told the world it could reach emissions by 2050 without doing anything. Just go on frying the planet to our heart's content and wait for technology, not taxes, technology, not taxes, to find the solutions. The conference did adopt a global methane pledge, obviously misinterpreted by Scuttledem, who boasted he supported a pledge to increase global methane. May the gas keep bubbling, the coal keep burning, the cattle keep burping. He expressed our commitment. The refusal massive methane pollution provided a major opportunity for the Socialist Party to attack the government fossils. Except, Anthony, we are Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Anthony all being Uzi, this is a great opportunity for you to expose the government's refusal to slash climate change pollution. I'm too smart to fall for your trick questions. No, no, this is a great opportunity to show that we will not make ourselves an easy target for the government. This government and Socialist Party policy strikes a sensible balance between mining and resource interests and pastoral interests. And uh, the environment? What about the environmental interests? Of course, we, we feel it will improve the political environment. So what will your policy differences be? Well, that is clear, and I have been making that difference clear. His policy, a disaster for True Blue Aussie, is to remain big supremo. And my policy, a great policy for True Blue Aussie, is to become big supremo. Oh, anything else? Uh, what else is there? Glasgow has also seen lots of countries support phasing out coal, although the biggest polluters, polluters, including the US of and China and India, and yes, of course, True Blue Aussie, realise it's much smarter to await the technological solution to materialise, technological mirage in the burning desert. Just a bit of a pity that in the middle of all this, as ungrateful Pacific neighbours complain we were not doing enough to prevent them sinking into the briny amid other climate effects, for goodness sake, what business is that of theirs? Just a pity this information leaked of Trublowozzi's contribution in September as the Asian Development Bank debated a ban on investing in new coal-fired generation. Trublowozzi's board member, Anthony MacDonald, real name, speaking for all of us, warned it was wishful thinking that coal use would decline. It was unreasonable. He spoke for Scummo when he spoke, in fact, for all of us, to expect countries to sacrifice their development to meet emissions reductions targets when coal, gas, large hydro and nuclear comprise so much of energy generation. And as our Pacific neighbours still complained, Anthony said it was wrong to assume all coal-fired power generation was high emissions. Apparently, he's streets ahead of us knowing what's ahead in the technology, not taxes department. 
Sadly, for our national interest, the ban was carried, despite Anthony's, despite True Blue Aussie's, in fact, most reasonable arguments. As consumers of fruit and vegetables, let's all get behind this campaign by farmers and growers to keep prices down for all of us. Farmers defending us against lazy, avaricious workers. This national economy-destroying decision that fruit and vegetable pickers must receive the minimum wage of $25 an hour. $25 an hour? How can the economy afford that? Well, quite simply, it can't. As Mark King hit the workers' chair of dried fruits, Trubler was, he gasped. Shocking! This will cause labour costs to climb. As prices increase, showing their concern for all of us. Well, except for the not all of us, lazy, avaricious workers ripping them off. Lazy, avaricious workers who want to send our cost of living soaring or climbing, to quote Mark. And, and I hope no one thinks, if $25 is the minimum rate and paying it will send wage costs soaring, does that mean, no, no, mean workers are being severely underpaid? That Mark and his lot are ripping them off? No, no, as Mark pointed out, paying them wages would mean they wouldn't have an incentive to work harder for the less they now earn, showing how lazy, lazy avaricious workers are. And guest workers brought in primarily from the Pacific, where we're already doing so much for their environment, have lots of costs extracted by their caring labour hire sponsor. Little matters like accommodation in a friendly social environment with lots of other workers, travel, water, breathing. Still, at the end of the week, there's more often than not a little something left over to put in their pockets, and, and the government helps them get that little by putting up signs warning them, warning them of the dire consequences, deportation, of complaining about their working and living conditions. Thankless, thankless, lazy, avaricious workers. In fairness, the super-efficient labour hire caring employers also rip off the farmers. Win-win. Get it coming and going. And talk about selective diversions. The evil union, the AWU, and now there's an evil union if ever we saw one, but where a German backpacker received a whopping $3 an hour for a day's work. Now, I'm being cynical there. That isn't a lot. But all I can say is, pull your German finger out. And given the ridiculously high prices people pay for fruit and veggies from the big supermarket duo, compared to big market, for instance, the greed of these workers wanting the minimum wage and making those prices even higher is compounded. Serious and vital political debate like any Socialist Party poly who as much as looks sideways must resign has been led by the man even the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin described as the state caring business class party attack dog, Tim Smite Them, who had a few drinks with friends or maybe a couple of wines or maybe a lot of wines. Well, understandably, he can't quite remember the facts. After all, he blew a breathalyzer to smithereens, or is that smithereens? Anyway, Tim is aware that that is nothing compared to a socialist looking sideways as he attacked dogged himself. Does one era mean a, a careerish over forever? No, no, not in every case, Tim, but oh, look, let's give him a little award to ease his pain. Tim, it couldn't happen to a nicer award is on its way.
Over in the US of footballer brackets temporary Jordan to going nowhere has hired the same apparently high-powered lawyer who represented serial sex sleaze Harvey Weinstein. And although Jordan is a reasonably good footballer, albeit I think overrated, I suspect, well, his record shows, he's not too talented in the brain department, because someone should point out to him, Weinstein is doing life. Finally, just because poor Jeff Bezos is one of the world's richest, if not the world's richest, doesn't mean lazy, avaricious workers aren't ripping him off, as post-pandemic changes in the workforce have meant he has to provide the thousands to whose lives he gives meaning day after day, night after night, with that most crippling work practice of all, wages. These selfish workers may prevent Jeff from saving the planet from climate change, if there is such a thing, as his profits plunge to a mere several trillion, and he tries to save us by establishing a mixed-use business park in space to be called, this is true, Orbital Reef. What a practical, practical, altruistic man, seeing the writing on the wall for planet Earth and saving us by giving us another planet to stuff up, exposing, like for the poor fruit and veggie growers, the massive problems, the sleepless totting and turning night after night workers pose for their caring employers. Good afternoon. And thanks once again to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was. And if you're one of those people who are up and about at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I'm sure that most people are, you can hear more of Kevin and his friends here on 3CR with City Limits from 9 until 10 every Wednesday morning. CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Today we refocus on the Park Hotel in Swinson Street, Carlton. Reading from their webpage, the Park Hotel Melbourne is located on the fringe of Melbourne CBD in the cosmopolitan district of Carlton. Relaxed in the city outskirts with eye-catching views of Lincoln Square and Swanson Street. All rooms are modern in style, offering hotel rooms through to relaxing queen spa suites. Blue Bar and Grill is a contemporary restaurant offering the very best of food in a relaxed, service and friendly setting. Carlton is one of Melbourne's best-known cosmopolitan centres, boasting a diverse range of outstanding restaurants, shops, cultural activities and night spots. The convenient and relaxing location of the Park Hotel Melbourne offers an easy 10-minute walk to Melbourne CBD. For some maybe, but not all. For asylum seekers now housed in the hotel, the prison hotel 
has been described as a death trap. I spoke with retired solicitor and asylum seeker activist Max Costello and asked him first to give some background to this hotel's reluctant residence and the hotel itself for those not familiar with the building and the area. The background is that it was one of the hotels under a different name in the Victorian uh, hotel quarantine fiasco. I think it changed ownership and became renamed. It's because it's located next to a small park in Carlton, just uh, south of about uh, 400 metres south of Melbourne University. It's, it's on Swanson Street, which, as people might recall, is one of the main streets in the Melbourne CBD and continues north to uh, Melbourne University. And for these hotels to become a designated place for asylum seekers, what stipulations are there for the conditions of that hotel? That's a very good question, uh, to which I don't know the answer. I'll just say this, that the Minister has the power to designate any place he or she thinks appropriate to be, quote, a place of alternative detention. We're using the first letters of those. It's an APOT, for example, in the monthly uh, reports put out by Home Affairs slash Australian Border Force of Immigration Statistics. There are, you know, numbers of the men, women and children in APODs at various locations are recorded. The explanation on Home Affairs Border Force literature and official statement says that APODs are designed, they're less um, stringent and less, uh, they don't use that word, but they, they're designed for particular circumstances. And the hint being that they're more suitable for particular individuals and groups that might not necessarily fit the standard immigration detention, the old style immigration detention facility. There are, of course, uh, there's one more major category apart from IDCs or IDFs, uh, IDC, IDCs, Immigration Detention Centres and APODs, and that is the ITAs, the Immigration Transit Accommodation Facility. So the, the Melbourne one, for example, is nicknamed MITRE, the Brisbane one, BITRE, and so on. They're, they're called transit accommodation, but in fact, People could stay there for years in very long periods of time. But anyway, the hotel, the Park Hotel, as it became known, as, as currently known by, is one of immigration, or now we now know as Australian Border Force Home Affairs, uh, it's one of the APODs. The men in the Park Hotel APOD came from other detention facilities about, I'd be about a year, perhaps 18 months ago, Quite a few of them had been at another hotel, APOD, which was the one, it was up in Preston. It was the APOD, the hotel, that they were first brought to when they were brought from Manus, from Papua New Guinea or Nauru for medical treatment. Instead of being placed in the community and given that treatment, they were just locked up in, in mainly in the hotel APOD out of Preston. Well, we're now in Carlton, 
and the label for this place is that it's a, a death trap. Can you explain why? Very soon after the men arrived, the windows on the top two floors where the men were housed and still are mainly, although there's some movement around because of COVID, they had windows that could be opened and windows that were clear glass and people could see in, you know, but from the ground you're looking, you only see the men sort of head and shoulders, but you could see them, they could see the supporters who gathered. But very quickly, those uh, windows were sealed closed and covered with a a film was placed across them so that it almost obscured the view, certainly the view inside. I don't know what view the men get from inside, but, but you can only see slight shadows. And if they have a mobile phone with the light showing, you can see, can wave that. When they were out in Preston, the windows, they could be opened a tiny fraction, you know, a few centimetres. Uh, so there was a, a, a little bit of fresh air available, but there was clear vision and the, the men could uh, be seen. They could hold up placards uh, and they could see what the people below, the supporters below were, if they had placards. And they, they clearly got, and they, they, the guy that's known as, full name is Mustafa, but known as Moz, he, he said repeatedly that seeing the supporters being able to visually interact with them and with by phones and microphones on particular occasions, being able to speak and be heard and, 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 and listen to what the uh, supporters were, were saying was immensely supportive. They, they've been locked up for nearly eight years and one one place or another and mainly, of course, in Papua New Guinea and, and Nauru and all these guys were from Manus pretty much and um, the psychological support was very, very important. So what did uh, Home Affairs Border Force do? Close off the air, the fresh air and close off the visual and, and other psychological support which was so important to these uh, people. And then we have COVID. Yes. The latest figures, I just uh, printed them off as at the 5th of November. This is the Australian Border Force update. 22 of the detainees have had or do have COVID. Uh, 14, it says, have uh, completed their isolation period and have been medically cleared to return to their previous accommodation arrangements. Uh, Seven are being treated in their accommodation and one remains in hospital. How did they get COVID? How did COVID enter the hotel? Well, it certainly isn't from detainees going out and about. They have been, unless escorted by a Serco guards for a particular approved reason, and we're not aware, unless it was perhaps going to hospital in an ambulance, they have been totally locked up. And so... It wasn't that they were out and about picking up the virus from from incidental contact. It was only by people bringing the virus in, and and they would presumably be workers of some kind, not necessarily circo guards, but maybe caterers, cleaners, other people who had work reasons to enter the hotel. And of course, there are supposed to be virtually bulletproof safeguards 
to prevent COVID from being brought into high-risk sites and settings, which, of course, immigration detention facilities are such. Those, whatever precautions there were, were inadequate and the virus got in some weeks ago now. That's another issue. Um, There have been pressure and calls from people going way back, actually, when even when they were just brought here and detained in APODs or a handful of cases in an ITA or, a, or an IDC. There, there were calls from medicos, a whole range of concerned public uh, interest groups calling for them to be released from, from dangerous settings. You'll recall, Jan, that back in what February of 2020 or so, via the newly established um, National Cabinet, there was a list of high-risk settings, aged care facilities, prisons, detention centres and places where people with very severe physical or psychiatric conditions were housed together. They were the highest-risk settings and they were to be either the first or 1A or 1B, I can't remember which applied to um, IDFs, detention facilities of all kinds, but they were supposed to be the highest priority for vaccination. Well, as we know, the vaccinations became, despite SCOMO's long delay in actually organising, they arrived to the general community in, in March this year. They were first offered to the Park Hotel detainees six months later in August. That is a an unforgivable, uh, shocking situation. Had the vaccines been made available and t- the offer taken up, it's almost certain that the the COVID outbreak wouldn't have occurred. Also inadequate is the charge that when the men became ill, they were not given proper medical care. Well, that's right. I've, I've just been sent, and I won't give the name, a, a concerned advocate with knowledge of health and safety law wrote to Comcare in June this year, early on, um, and just pointed out that under the health and safety, the Commonwealth Work Health and Safety Act, WHS Act, which of course covers all Commonwealth workplaces and therefore immigration detention facilities, my fellow advocate listed uh, the following deficiencies that you're just asking about. Detainees had COVID symptoms for up to a week before being tested. There was no testing prior to leaving quarantine on the first floor. Those in quarantine for COVID reasons, didn't have a change of clothes for 14 days, no doctor attended, a nurse didn't attend some days, the nurse or workers were in the quarantine area and moving to other floors, the supplies of Panadol ran out on some days, the third floor was more or less out of action because it smelt of sewage. Uh, mobile ventilators, this is a good thing, had been installed in each individual room. The, <clears throat> the guys with, were quarantined one to a room, which is a better than previous arrangement, two to a room. But um, those mobile ventilators are not enough on their own. And the windows, as far as I know, the windows remain sealed closed. Some staff, and the list goes on, had incomplete PPA training there were overflowing clinical waste bins and, of course, no sunlight. Uh, there's a vitamin, is it vitamin B or vitamin D deficiency? Now, that list was sent to Comcare urging 
Comcare to investigate. In early November, the advocate received a reply from Comcare and said that Comcare had completed the inspection uh, uh, in relation to your the matters referred in, uh, in late June. In that matter, quote, the inspector formed a reasonable belief that the Department of Home Affairs complied with their duties under the Work Health and Safety Act. That tells you just, I oh, know it's only one, ex- one instance, but how could a reasonable and proper assessment of those conditions, let's assume that they're correct, I mean it's possible that one or two were slightly inaccurate, but taken all together, that's a situation which clearly doesn't comply with the very strict duty of care specified in the uh, Work Health and Safety Act. And, you know, all the Work Health and Safety Acts around Australia, they're virtually identical, and even the older OHS Acts in Victoria and Western Australia are very, very similar. So that tells you that uh, that Comcare, on the face of it, Comcare is nothing to see here. Response is not the result of a, a genuine... Uh, according to the Act, uh, inspection or, or um, investigation. On the face of it, that's, I think, what's fairly clear. Well, these issues and more you had hoped and others had hoped to be aired at a recent Senate Estimates Committee meeting. Yes. What happened then? Yeah. There were two Senate Estimates Committee meetings on the, the week before last, uh, the, on the Monday... The uh, Home Affairs slash Australian Border Force, with along with you know people come and go, different subgroups or different organisations come and go. But but for example, Mr. Pizzullo, who's the secretary of the Home Affairs Department, he was there for the whole time from about 3:15 till about just after 11 p.m. There were breaks, of course, for you know afternoon tea and dinner, but. But that's a long session. Then secondly, on the Wednesday, a shorter session, just an hour and a bit, uh, Comcare was there. Because I've said Comcare was the, is the regulator, the supposed law enforcer for the Work Health, the Commonwealth Work Health and Safety Act. And um, Ms. Sue, the CEO, and a few of her senior people were, were there. Going back to the first one, the Senate estimates with uh, Home Affairs slash Border Force, I had sent three months ago a raft of questions to be asked at that Senate estimates. That I'd sent, of course, with, by email with the attachment documents attached. And then about uh, two months ago, I sent hard copies via Express Post. Uh, this was to the senators, ALP senators, in particular uh, Christina Keneally, who's a very, she's the Shadow Home Affairs and very effective uh, when she gets stuck into something, and to sympathetic senators such as the Greens, Nick McKim, and uh, Rex Patrick, who's an independent, but he's pretty strong on process and probity. And I got uh, replies, but in particular, I got a reply after the hard copies arrived by Express Post, from the office of the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, uh, saying that uh, he thanked me for those uh, comprehensive questions and uh, his office had referred them to Labor's Senate team. And subsequently, I had an email from Christina Keneally's 
chief of staff, I presume, is certainly someone from her office who who mentioned the questions and um, indicated that he was looking at them. Uh, so I was hoping that at least some of them would be asked. You know, of course, you send a whole raft of questions to politicians and they decide which ones to choose. I didn't expect them all to be asked. And that's, in fact, I suggest there were so many of them that they should split them up between, you know, Greens, Labor and Independence to make, because you don't get unlimited time to ask questions. It's a fairly controlled process, time controlled. I should add that I sent a week or two before the event, I sent supplementary questions which focused on the Park Hotel. Those questions didn't get asked either. Well, what strikes me is, is it, it, I think it's shocking that none of the questions was asked. Although Nick McKim, to his credit, he did raise the Park Hotel issues in his own words, but covering a fair bit of what I'd proposed. So, you know, well done, Nick McKim. But it strikes me that the Park Hotel questions in particular were, I don't want to big note myself, but I think they're political gold. Because here in the in a hotel apod, uh, with delayed six month delay in particular, six months delay in the provision of vaccines, you've got a situation which was from top to bottom a Commonwealth government uh, responsibility. The Commonwealth government responsibility for obtaining and distributing the vaccines. The Commonwealth government, I mean through the health department or whatever agency. The Commonwealth Government via Home Affairs slash Border Force is in charge of all immigration detention facilities, however specifically titled. So it's 100% Commonwealth responsibility and a 100% failure, I would say, in health and safety terms, failure to comply with the, the Act. And so they weren't obscure questions of no current currency if you like they were the sort of things that if the questions of the park hotel in particular had been asked and answered then they would have i think they could well have made national you know a lead item in national news here you've got a situation where an identified high risk covid is kept waiting six months to even get offered the vaccines i mean that is well, I mean, it is literally, I, I say, criminal by way of breach of the Health and Safety Act, but it's morally despicable and inexcusable. And, and so I think it would have got coverage and it might perhaps have led to coverage uh, maybe at a at later, say, for example, on the drum or the 7.30 for one of those more investigative uh, programs rather than straight news. It might have got follow-up coverage there to some of the other questions raised. So I think just an ordinary pub test sort of political failure of the senators, except for McKim, as I mentioned, to ask questions even about the um, the Park Hotel. I got, do not know why they weren't asked. And likewise, the you know, the um, on Wednesday, why Comcare wasn't asked also. The you know, similarly hot topic if... The, if uh, the Commonwealth Government, via one agent or other, is apparently failing to comply with basic health and safety law requirements. Well, the regulator that just sits there and does nothing and, and doesn't enforce the Act is likewise, uh, well, not 
legally culpable, but but certainly not doing its job. And and the what I read out before from a fellow advocate questions and Comcare is nothing to see here. Now that's oh, it's come to my attention a, a week or so after Comcare's appearance, so it wasn't available in that form. That's you know really really damning of Comcare, but it did that particular bit of information wasn't available to years. But just uh, raising the question, how could high-risk people not be given access to the vaccine for six months. That's my comment, um, uh, Jan. You're saying this was a, a lost opportunity of questions not asked at the Senate estimates. What other opportunities are there? Well, it may be, and I don't want to say any more than this, it may be, you see, advocate I mentioned and myself are, are virtually the only ones sometimes the rural Australians for refugees by some of their letters raise these questions but certainly breaches of uh, health and safety law are not in the mainstream or even the uh, main social media uh, outlets I think it's extraordinary that the cruelty I mean, every, a lot of people know about the cruelty and Australians, a lot of Australians know about the Bilawala family getting badly treated for a long time. But as far as I can read, it's just almost completely unknown that this this shocking way of treating people is criminal. It involves, in some cases, the worst criminal offence in the Health and Safety Act, and it's, it's not coming to light. So the individuals like myself are looking for broader avenues of support to try and put pressure on and get the media coverage. It may be, for example, that the union movement, because workers at times are put at risk in these settings, so it may be that's an avenue worth exploring. Just finally, I wrote to Comcare a month or so ago criticising their investigation into the situation of Little Tharnaka from Christmas Island, um, you know, that emergency health rush to airlift to Perth. And again, Comcare nothing said nothing to see here. And, and I criticised the response, but I also said, look, from to my knowledge, Comcare has not enforced the Health and Safety Act in relation to detainees. It's hardly ever. Maybe once they made charges in March this year, but uh, perhaps no other enforcement has occurred. And Comcare wrote back and says, oh, that's a very sweeping, not their words, a sweeping allegation. Mr Costello, can you provide some evidence? Then we might look at it. Well, I provided the evidence, and in, in two sentences, it's this. There is the one prosecution, that's enforcement of, in a way. There have been, since the Act came into force on 1st of January 2012, nine improvement notices issued. The inspector says, you're breaching the Act. Here's how and why. Uh, get the workplace in compliance by reasonable date X. They've issued nine of those improvement notices to uh, home affairs, immigration slash home affairs. My question back to Comcare is, well, were any of those alleged breaches that the inspectors are relating to the health and safety of detainees, or were they all just, well, not just, were they all about risks to workers? And I'm waiting for their answer back. If it, the answer is that they were, that none of those improvement notices related to risks to detainees, then the only time in nine years that Comcare has enforced the Act in relation to immigration detainees is one prosecution. That's it.
Okay, Maxwell, I'm sure that um, you're not going to let this ride, so I'll be talking to you again. Look forward to it, Chad. Thank you. Retired solicitor Max Costello, and we'll be hearing more from Max in the future. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. If you're one of those who gives presents at Christmas to friends and family, APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, has some great suggestions for you. There are a number of recently released books about Palestine and an APAN team have reviewed some of them. And today and in coming programs, I'll feature those reviews. But first today, the book is Dateline Jerusalem, Journalism's Toughest Assignment. And the reviewer is the CEO of APAN, Jessica Morrison. So, Jessica, what did you know about the author, John Lyons, before this latest book was released? Well, so John Lyons' work has inspired many of us for years because his work on Stone Cold Justice, which was first a expose in the Australian and then was an ABC Four Corners report, has been significant for so many people in understanding just how military occupation and its military court system works. Um, I just recently started at APAN, I think a year or two before that, and I've watched the ferocious complaints about this show come in before the show had even aired. And I thought, what is this going on that even before a show about Palestinians has aired, people feel able to complain against it? So I had known John Lyons' work for a long time um, and I just thought he was kind of, you know, an everyday journalist who happened to be based in the Middle East and therefore was telling stories. But over the years it's become clear, as John Lyons' first book, Balcony Over Jerusalem, showed and now his, his second book, just what a personal attack he has faced through just doing what he would see as doing his job as reporting what he sees with Israel and Palestine. How does this book compare to his first one in what he's saying about the situation in Palestine? The first story is much more a personal biography. It talks about the things that he saw and the things that he experienced, not only in Jerusalem and in Palestine and Israel, but also in Egypt and other places around the Middle East. So it's kind of a biography about what he saw and experienced while he was here. This book, which is a much daughter book is very specific and it doesn't really talk about his experiences in the Middle East it only talks about the experiences of journalists and Palestinians in Australia 
as they're engaging with Australian media. So some of his stories, he was based in Jerusalem, but many of the stories he recounts are from friends and colleagues or people he's interviewed here in Australia. So it's anecdote after anecdote, some first-hand, some second-hand, about what happens in newsrooms all around Australia as they decide what will be reported about Palestine and Israel. And you know many of those people with their connections to APAN and other groups. Have you spoken to any of those people since the book's come out? I've spoken to a couple of them who are just so relieved to see the truth being told. John Lyons has got some flack from some journalists that start talking about airing their dirty laundry. But for Palestinians in Australia, this isn't about dirty laundry. This is about the struggles that they have in having their stories told. So, for example, Samar Sabawi's experience of wanting an opinion piece published on an online um, ABC forum and finding out after the fact that her piece has been shown to the Zionist Federation for their input even before it's been published. So they're getting this kind of heads up. And I think what's really significant, I guess, both in terms of the book but also Palestinians who've talked about their experiences is that it's not only about the individual perspectives and biases of the journalists. And, you know, we all come with our experiences and our politics and our ideas. But it talks not just about journalists self-censoring, but the web of power networks that happened where journalists feel um, unable to tell the truth. Um, I mean, John Lyons is very critical of his colleagues who do self-censor, but he also talks about how from the board level all the way down of media organisations, the, the power of the pro-Israel lobby is felt. I'd just like you to talk about one other journalist, though, and that's Janine. How this has impacted on her as a 21-year-old. Yeah. And look, Janine's, you know, free to speak for herself, and I, I won't attempt to do that, but just to talk about what John has published in his book. It's a horrendous example about what a young Palestinian woman had to carry on her shoulders. So she's a young woman in Sydney, studied journalism, gets a gig working for a newspaper. And she is doing what John Lyon says is some fantastic work in connecting the stories of Western Sydney um, and in a sense doing that cultural translation of helping the real everyday stories in the community get told. But she is unable to be Janine a journalist. She is always, as it is discussed, is Janine the Palestinian journalist. Um, and in fact, a diplomat from the Israeli embassy visited the Australian editor and criticised them for employing a Palestinian. Now, there are so many questions that that raises. What a foreign diplomat is walking to, into a newspaper to tell them what, you know, what they think anyway. But, but why would the background of any particular journalist be cause of complaints? I mean, surely we hope that our newsrooms are full of the great diversity of our Australian communities. And her story just gets more challenging. So everybody knows who Janine is. All the senior editors know who Janine is because she's complained against, not because of the quality of her work, but because of the stories that she, she covers. And even when she goes and is given a really calm portfolio, the art section, 
Um, she talks about, you know, the campaign against the Masabawi's play, <laughs> as, which was, you know, a very reasonable art story. But again, there were, the complaints slide in. As John Lyons tells her story, she has this horrible experience where an editor walks in and screams at her, Palestine does not exist. Um, and yes, so she talks about being absolutely crushed and, you know, ultimately leaving journalism. Well, I think, Jessica, we all know the power of lobbies, but I don't think any of them match the pro-Israel lobby. Well, John Lyons contends that in terms of the influence on media, there is no other lobby that does. Certainly, you know, APAN's had some experience in walking the halls of Parliament, and there are a number of very powerful interest groups. So I don't know if the same is in terms of politics, but no other yeah, country receives as many Australian parliamentarians on private lobby trips than Israel. Yeah, so John Lyons certainly says it's the only issue uh, that the media are so cowed about. And he's done this as a, a working journalist. He's not someone who's retired from the business. That's right, yeah. I mean, so often you hear former politicians or former this or former that, and for us, there's, you know, lots of former people who work for the Israeli security forces who come out and speak the truth. But, I mean, John Lyons is currently um, working very senior position in the ABC. Um, he's the head of investigative journalism. So he has decided, while he's still in the game, in a sense it's permissive to his, his fellow colleagues, and I, I think a challenge to pick up the conversation. I think he wants to be part of the conversations around the table now. I mean, I, I think it's fantastic for John and I think, in a sense, it's a testament to the capacity for his character to stand up and the sort of coverage that he has had. He's had opinion pieces, a couple of opinion pieces published as well as being on ABC radio, that actually perhaps there is appetite in at least some of our media community to have the conversation. I'm just thinking, Jess, this book could be a turning point. I certainly hope so. And I think it has been something that has been building for a long time. I mean, John Lyons is by far the only voice uh, in the book who talks about the power of the, the lobby. Many others in the book do as well. So I think this is, in a sense, a pushback against that, um, an attempt to challenge what's happening. So, I, look, I would certainly hope so. I'd just like to put in a plug for 3CR here because... For many years, 3CR has been subject to that same harassment and intimidation we had years ago when the licence renewal was coming up every two or three years. We had the Israel lobby trying to shut CR down. But we stood firm and right up to this time, we have Palestinians broadcasting and we have programs promoting Palestine and telling the truth. Absolutely. CCR should be incredibly proud at standing with Palestinians as they seek to have their voices heard. And I remember reading the Radical Radio, the first, what was it, the first 40 years of 3CR's history? Yeah. Um, that fantastic book that came out a few years ago. And I had no idea the depth and the breadth and the history of how much 3CR has faced flag and has never flinched. And so, yes, I'm indebted to 3CR, particularly for programs like this one, Jan, for sharing Palestinian voices, as well as Palestinian programs, Palestine Remembered, 
and Yusuf's program in Arabic that names escapes me right now. But 3CR is certainly a wonderful platform, as, in, as with so many other issues, it dares to tell the truth. How do people get a copy of this book through APAN? Yeah, so you can buy the book directly from the publisher. So Monash University Press has, has published it. You can buy it from the publisher or from all the good independent bookshops. Um, so reading certainly has it too. Um, APAN has a section on our website which is devoted to books and book reviews and we always have a link um, to where you can buy them. So if you Google APAN book reviews, um, hopefully you will find them and be able to find a link. Um, but in this case, Monash University Press is where you can buy it directly or reading bookshop or other independent bookshops. And thank you. Thank you, as always, Jan. Jessica Morrison from APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and the book she's been discussing, Dateline for Jerusalem, published by Monash University Press. And the author, John Lyons. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. Tributes poured in for the former Republican Secretary of State, Colin Powell, after the announcement of his death, among them from Biden, quote, a dear friend and patriot of unmatched honour and dignity, unquote. But to others, including millions of Iraqis, he was a war criminal, Colin Powell's blood-soaked service to the empire. And from an Iraqi from Mosul, quote, the court of God will be waiting for him, unquote. Writing in Pearls and Irritations, Benoit Kampmark, who lectures at RMIT University in Melbourne in International Law, Politics and Global Studies. He was an establishment warrior with a taste for regime change. I spoke with Benoit and began by pointing out that for most people who are aware of Colin Powell, the main focal point was that speech to the UN on the 5th of February 2003, a 76-minute speech which persuaded probably millions of Americans to support the war on Iraq. But his military career went back over three decades. And I asked him to go back over this military career to give a more detailed account of that career and its impact on people in a number of countries in the world. 
uh, as you rightly point out, you know, he is uh, famed for that uh, display, as it were, in the UN Security Council, making the case that essentially led up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Uh, but uh, what is important to remember is that he's very much known as the establishment figure of both of U.S. diplomacy, but also the military. Um, and he essentially made his name first uh, when he was investigating, and he was one of the first officers on the scene, so to speak, uh, who was asked to look in 1969 at the atrocities um, in Nhi Lai, you know, which is the hamlet uh, in Vietnam, South Vietnam, where the U.S. troops had committed you know, one of the atrocities of that war. 500 or so villagers were killed. And uh, he was one of the officers who was asked to investigate. And he came to the conclusion that it was a slur and uh, maliciously made the complaint. Of course, that turns out not to have been the case. You know, the massacre did take place, and uh, you know, it was one of the more notorious instances of U.S. military engagement in the Vietnam War. And essentially after that, uh, he continued his uh, military career, but also with stints in if you like, in the government. You know, he also, and after in the 1970s, he was uh, eyed by, as you said, individuals in the Defense Department, um, individuals such as Caspar Weinberger, who became Secretary of Defense you know, under the Reagan administration. And then uh, during the Reagan administration, he also served as uh, Security Deputy Security Advisor or National Security Advisor and then, and then National Security Advisor. And this led him quite... You know, logically, as I write, into the Joint Chiefs of Staff position, where, of course, he made his mark as a person who was very mindful of the Vietnam syndrome you know, in the context of the U.S. and uh, involvement and so on. So the U.S. would only be involved unless they could exert maximum force with clear political goals. And so it would only be in circumstances where there would be overwhelming use of force and the objectives would be clear. And this is one of the reasons why he was uh, always uh, skeptical and cautionary regarding, say, uh, U.S. use of uh, force in, for example, in Bosnia or U.S. use of force in Somalia and so on. And he would say that this wasn't uh, the sort of fight that we want to engage in in a full way. He was that sort of character um, who made his name through that in the so-called Powell Doctrine. And, of course, that's, that's one of the perverse things about it. It all unraveled in 2003 with his, uh, with his embrace, as it were, of the case for war against Iraq. Can I take you back to 1989 and the invasion of Panama? I've read that he was one of those who oversaw that invasion. Yes, uh, he was, again, it was one of those, uh, uh, dare I call it, dirty little conflicts in the Americas that uh, would be that the U.S. has engaged in you know, sporadically through the years. He did oversee that. I mean, again, you know, it was one of those cases where the premise essentially in the end was to, to seek the protection of individuals you know, with very little merit. Um, but he was one who didn't see that there would be much risk in that. And again, it's one of those instances where deploying troops in a certain circumstance without much risk to the U.S. reputation is perfectly fine. And so he, in a sense ran that particular model, if you like, in Panama. So he was certainly one of those who oversaw that. Is it true that he was directly supervising the torturers at the School of the Americas? 
He was uh, over time, and this is the thing, you know, that I've certainly alluded to that in, in writing that he was, of course, uh, technically supervising the group because he uh, oversaw over the course of time as security advisor their operations. So, yes, uh, even though, in a sense, he came a bit later uh, to the position, he was overseeing the operations of this infamous school uh, with trained technicians, torturers, interrogators, who were then, of course, sent as advisors, so to speak, advisors to the various uh, uh, Latin American authoritarian regimes and so on. So technically speaking, yes, you know, he, he did oversee the operation, or the operations of this infamous body. What was his involvement in the first Gulf War? Well, it's, 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 of course, as, uh, as chief of staff, you know, he was uh, very prominent in overseeing uh, the, of course, Operation Desert Storm. And this is where he could really run his uh, Powell Doctrine to a T, so to speak, the gathering of enormous force. Uh, there was a lot of uh, international goodwill, if you like, for joining the United States you know, with, with um, the then administration there keen on removing the presence of the Iraqis in Kuwait. And it's important to note that when he did oversee the operation, he was also very much cautious about going further than Kuwait. So the idea was, yes, you remove the Iraqi forces, Saddam Hussein's forces from Kuwait, but you don't go, you know, you don't take the road to Baghdad, so to speak. He was certainly one of those who decided that, no, Saddam should stay, that it's merely that we just eject his forces from or expel them from Kuwait, which is what happened. And, of course, it came back to haunt him, too, because then um, after 9-11, Saddam then looms as this threat, you know, and uh, is made up, as it were, into this big threat, and that's where he comes in and plays that particular episode. Well, we started with the 2003 speech to the UN, 76 minutes, how much of that speech were his words? The speech, uh, I, I always remember what happened after the, the, the speech for, for one of the Iraqi officials, and I, I don't think it was Tariq Aziz, it was someone else. Uh, but uh, he said that this is uh, the most uh, remarkable display of pyrotechnics and nonsense he'd ever seen. And uh, if you go through the speech uh, in terms of its display and you start to uh, unpick it, it is an astonishing you know, tissue of uh, fabrications and assumptions. Um, one has to remember with the speech is that Powell himself went through the supposed evidence that demonstrated that Saddam had weapons of so-called weapons of mass destruction and vetted it with his own staff beforehand. So it's not as if, you know, he just turned up to the party and was told to read the speech. You know, it has been said that it was drafted by Dick Cheney's office, the vice president's office, and Dick Cheney, the very hawkish um, Dick Cheney, who wanted the war with Iraq. But the fact is, he signed up to it, he approved of it, he went through it, and he delivered the most astonishing suggestions linking the uh, Iraqi regime, Saddam's regime, with al-Qaeda. There was no such link. Um, The issue of a nuclear program, there was no such program. Uh, The ideas of certain... Uh, manufacturing, connections, and supply um, of materials to make WMDs. There was no such connection supply. Uh, the information that went into it was astonishingly uh, fanciful. 
Um, and there was even material, and of course it's important to note that a lot of the material that was put into the report came from the Iraqi Exile Committee, which is based in um, Washington and in the United States more broadly, that was feeding him um, sources that were deeply unreliable. And so, in a sense, the combination of piffle uh, on the one hand and uh, deception and then dissembling and dissimulation and you name it, and that was the nature of that speech. And the initial response to that speech? Just, you know, a sense of foreboding because it was clear for anybody seeing that speech at that point, it was very clear at that particular point in time that war was desired, you know, by certain powers. And if they were going to subvert and bypass the Security Council, they would. Um, Because up until that point, there was still some hope very, very sort of, um, even though it was diminishing, that <clears throat> weapons inspectors would still be allowed to go into Iraq, led by Hans Blix, and that there would be a push for a UN Security Council resolution to that effect. But it was becoming increasingly clear, and that speech demonstrated it all, that the U.S. wanted war. And, and that's why there was such foreboding when that speech was delivered, because it was clear, even though even then it was considered unconvincing to many who saw the speech that conflict seemed um, inevitable and that, yes, if they did get a UN Security Council resolution, fine, but uh, the French were, of course, became the famous uh, um, voices against the conflict in the Security Council, and the French were not going to be convinced that that conflict was needed. So they had to be you know, subverted, bypassed, and that's, that's what we saw, the gathering of voices on the so-called, you know, the creakily compiled in a coalition of the willing. Was he speaking to the world community, or was he speaking to the U.S. community? Oh, it was very much the U.S. community, or with the hope that, uh, um, so again, it's one of those things where the, it's, it's a drumming up of, domestic support, and which is very powerful, of course, with 9-11, and, <clears throat> and throwing in links between Saddam and al-Qaeda that are, are totally fictitious uh, is a very important thing to do. It's a strategy that Rumsfeld advocated from the start. You know, you need to link one with the other. You need to link the regime with one, which, irrespective of how ideologically apart they were, religiously, ideologically, you name it. It drums up support locally, of course, by saying Saddam equals 9-11 and equals and so forth. Therefore, we need to change that regime, overthrow that and so on. So, yes, the audience was primarily for the Americans, uh, U.S. domestic audience, but that there was a hope. And, and this is the thing. Powell did genuinely believe that he could convince the U.N. Security Council about the dangers posed by the Saddam regime. So he did go in thinking you know, rather like what the U.S. did with the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, in the early 1960s, the idea was, you know, what you do in that case is that we will, we have the pictures of these silos, we have the pictures of these weapons that are based in Cuba. You know, he was thinking along those lines that it would be a, a demonstration of evidence and truth, and of course, those, that's exactly what it wasn't. What was his relationship with men like Rumsfeld and? Cheney and Co. Of course, subsequently, after he left, you know, the State Department, he tries to give the impression that he didn't really get on with them, trying to distance himself, as it were, from Cheney, from Rumsfeld, and so forth. 
I think it's it's fair to say that there were not necessarily on the best of terms, but it also would be wrong to say that he didn't, uh, you know, uh, he wasn't part, if you like, of the outfit. And I think too much has been made, certainly by him, that he didn't have, you know, much involvement with them. But of course, the, uh, ultimately, he did sign up to many of these ideas. And when he had a tendency of laying blame with others, yes, he said, okay, it's a blot in my career, the UN, you know, presentation. You know, regarding um, Iraq and you know, so-called weapons of mass destruction, but uh, the reality was Rumsfeld had more to say, or Cheney had more to say. I was merely the diplomat, you know, I was merely the Secretary of State. But uh, as I point out, you know, in the piece there, the issue fundamentally for him was, is that regime change was ultimately something he approved of, and uh, it's something again he does, you know, when he regarding. Um, the committee Bush sets up dealing with Cuba, uh, where he also is an advocate, essentially, of regime change there. So there's no distancing him from the ultimate project of the United States and, and the way that his ideology could be also linked to the likes of Rumsfeld, even though Rumsfeld was a bit different in other ways as well. So words like on my career and others, was that as far as he went to apologize or admit that he was wrong? That's essentially, um, you know, as far as he went. Yes, he did say that he treated it, he treats it like the sort of the, um, uh, almost like the useful idiot's defense. Uh, yes, I, I, you know, he, he sort of, he got it wrong, but he doesn't say, uh, he never said, for example, I got it wrong, and as a result of that, a state was destroyed, millions were left dead. Um, and in its way, the Middle East was destabilized. So you know, he never goes that far. He always would say that, yes, essentially, and this is, again, back to the idea of being hoodwinked. He, give, he gives the impression, always gave the impression, that he was somehow misled, that this wasn't a case of someone actually really believing what he was doing. So in a sense, he's even worse than the ideological hawks, because even to this day, for example, someone like Paul Wolfowitz, believes it was the thing to do, believes that Iraq needed to be changed, believes that Iraq's regime needed to be overthrown. And, and in fact, someone like Wolfowitz is still of the belief that the U.S. should be in Afghanistan. So there's a difference between the likes of Wolfowitz for all the banality and the viciousness and, and the credo there. He is a genuine believer in the pursuit of regime change, whereas uh, Powell was doing the same thing, but without that kind of conviction. So in that sense, you know, I think you know, he's, he's more, a bit more mealy-mouthed when it comes to those sorts of things. Well, the Iraqi people will never forgive or forget, and one Iraqi journalist said he was sad that he had died without being tried for war crimes against the people of Iraq. Yes, uh, of course, and, and that's the, the sad equation in all of this, the sad nature when you discuss figures such as Conan Powell, and, and the same thing, of course, in you know, Rumsfeld also died recently. Uh, when you think of these figures, uh, you think, yes, that's, that's precisely it. You know, the, there have been you know, various people's tribunals and efforts to you know, drum up interest in getting someone like Powell into the dock, if you like, but, uh, of course, the, the reality is that there's no, you know, um, after settling with the Bush, sorry, with the Obama administration, Obama was very careful to make sure that <laughs> any senior U.S. officials were not going to be 
um, held accountable specifically for actions in Iraq and or in Afghanistan, be it for war crimes, be it for illegal wars, and so forth. So I'm afraid that, uh, yes, the, that, that's very much a, a wish uh, that's not going to be fulfilled and has not been fulfilled. So finally, really no lessons learned. No, I'm, I'm afraid it's, uh, you know, history is precisely leaves lessons that I never learnt, um, and, and that's a very tragic thing about this. But one thing that can be said, though, is that and uh, when you reflect about the role of someone such as uh, Colonel Powell, it has been said, and I always, this is my ref- reflection that, that so many people tend to forget about, is the role he played, whether consciously or not, in the cover-up of My Lai. Okay, and the cover-up of the atrocities of U.S. forces in that hamlet in South Vietnam in 1969, and that he said it was a slur on the U.S. military, it could not have happened. And if that is how he dealt with the evidence then, if that is how he approached it, and he may have had in his mind certain good reasons to do so, given the evidence that was available then, and then only subsequently coming out, it's, it's indication of a very much an establishment figure, a figure who doesn't want to rock the boat, a figure who knows that he is liked, and a figure who also wants power. Let's not forget that in the early 90s, he was touted as a potential U.S. president and uh, seen as charming, seen as appropriate. And then it was only his, supposedly only his wife who told him that if you do run for the White House, I will divorce you. So uh, very much the establishment figure, very much a person you know, who had a lot of guile about him that's often forgotten. Thank you so much. A pleasure. And I was speaking there with Binoy Kavmark, who lectures at RMIT University here in Melbourne in international law, politics and global studies. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. Now we rejoin Sasha Kelis-Lakakis and his recent history of Mexico. In 1914, that phase of the Mexican Revolution has come to an end, but it's not the last phase. Um, and there's more chaos to come, unfortunately, because now that the revolutionaries are finally in charge of the country, this is where there's the really nitty-gritty sort of discussion of, well, what is the Mexican Revolution going to be? And there's very serious disagreements over this. And essentially the Liberals, led by Carranza, so that man we mentioned earlier, they split from Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata. So essentially this revolutionary bloc splits into two. On one hand you have the Liberals, who again, they've made their intention very clear that they want to create this sort of liberal democracy, this sort of modern capitalist country in Mexico, with a, you know, a reasonable degree of sort of progressive social policy, but nothing major, nothing, nothing more than, than anything else that has been proposed at this time. And on the other hand, you have 
the true revolutionaries, the ones who want to push ahead with a land reform, the ones who want to really sort of overthrow the oligarchy in Mexico once and for all and create some sort of revolutionary workers and peasant state. And, you know, there's there's a massive sort of exchange of ideas during this period. It's a really exciting time, actually, in Mexico. There's a lot of Mex- uh, Mexican communist and socialist movements. Indigenous organizations sort of begin to, to sort of assert themselves for the first time in a very long time in Mexico. But what happens is that Carranza ends up saying that he is going to fight Emiliano Zapata and Pancho Villa. And there's another civil war in Mexico, chiefly this time confined just to the north and just to the south, where these two movements are sort of focused. And it's really difficult this time because the liberals have the added advantage of not only having the wealthiest allies. I mean, you know, they they have friends in the business community in Mexico. They control the sort of economic levers of power as well. But they also end up coming to control a large part of the military. Um, And that's a really big advantage against Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata, who just have these sorts of... They're well organised, but they're they're a guerrilla movement. They don't have the same firepower to fight the military. And, you know, they're already really sort of battle-weary from fighting against Porfirio Diaz and then from fighting against the coup. And now they have to fight against the Liberal government in Mexico. And what happens is, up until really, up until sort of 19... 20-ish, there's this sort of civil war. It's not as severe as the previous years, but there's a lot of conflict between the radicals and between the liberals. We have a key moment in 1917, and that's the approval and the creation of the New Mexican Constitution. And this shows just the, the degree, I suppose, of how severe the division between the liberals and the radicals is. Because even though Carranza and the liberals, it's clear that they're sort of winning the war, they control most of the official sort of institutions in Mexico, the revolutionaries are still a very potent force and they manage to send their delegates to this drafting of the constitution and they actually threaten to intensify the war if their demands aren't included. The revolutionaries weren't powerful, that would have failed, but Carranza actually has to take them into account because he knows that they can actually cause a lot of damage to this new Mexican government. So what ends up being created, promulgated, is actually a very, very progressive constitution. So the 1917 Mexican constitution is the first one in the world to recognise social rights as inalienable, so education, healthcare, housing, employment. This is the first constitution in the world that recognises those as actual rights for everyday people. And they actually managed to include the land reform clause, which doesn't actually state that they have to give it to the peasants, but it does state that the Mexican government is the only owner, is the only entity that has the right or the authority to use the land. I know that Mexico is a long way away from Russia, But did the Russian Revolution of 1917 impact at all on Mexico? Yeah, interestingly, it's actually almost the other way around. You know, the Mexican Revolution, particularly this constitution that we're talking about, actually influenced the creation of the Soviet Union. So we now know that Lenin personally was actually very inspired by the example of the Mexican constitution. And we know that when they were drafting the Soviet constitution, which was easily the most progressive constitution of the time. Um, and, it, you know, it is, some might argue it is still actually one of the most progressive constitutions even today. They actually drew a lot of inspiration and, and actually direct clauses in some rare cases from the Mexican 
governing text because of how progressive it was in some aspects. And that was particularly, again, around the land, this issue of land and land reform, but also the social rights. That was a really key thing in Russia, expanding and universalising access to education and healthcare. Of course, the first constitution to mandate that, of course, it wasn't always adhered to, uh, was the Mexican one. Uh, and the Russians really sort of studied the Mexican constitution very closely, and they took a lot of a lot of inspiration from it. In terms of the the movement itself in Mexico, whether there was that a much sort of Russian uh, influence, n- not really at this point, because of course the Mexican Revolution occurred, you know, about seven odd years. It started seven odd years before the Russian Revolution took place, and you know the ideas in Mexico were quite well developed in terms of the ideologies of these differing factions. You know, you had your Mexican liberals, you had your sort of peasant-based or rural poor-based movements that were very focused on the land reform and on Indigenous empowerment. And there wasn't exactly a very, you know, a very tangible link at that time between the Russian context and what was occurring in Mexico. But as Russia, the Russian Revolution sort of began to solidify, the Mexican Revolution did too, you do actually notice that they actually do become quite um, not allies, but the two countries do actually become quite amicable partners in a lot of international sort of cooperation agreements. And, and there's a, a great deal of trade between Russia and Mexico. For a long time, Mexico is the major trading partner of Russia in the entirety of the Americas. So including North America, South America and the Caribbean, Mexico is the major trading partner really up until the late 30s, early 40s when World War II begins, which is really interesting And I think it speaks to how sort of connected these movements are. Yet Trotsky was assassinated in Mexico. Yes. So just to conclude, so we can explain what exactly happened to Trotsky, I'll just very quickly say what happened with the rest of the, you know, because it concludes in 1920, the Mexican Revolution. Zapata is assassinated and Pancho Villa is assassinated a little while after. So the Liberals, basically, they win. But in 1920... Carranza is assassinated by northern generals who were sympathetic to Pancho Villa. So in a weird sort of twist of fate, the radicals do end up sort of coming to power in the form of these generals that rule up until 1940. They are very fiercely patriotic, very progressive nationalists. They fully comply with the land reform clauses of the Constitution. They're very hostile to the United States. They reimpose very harsh limitations on the Catholic Church. And it actually is, in many senses, a revolutionary state. I wouldn't go so far as to say a socialist state or a communist state, but definitely a very progressive Latin American nationalist state. And essentially what you have, though, is, of course, now that this government is in power, it's very eager to curry favour with other governments that are in power. And that, of course, it does exclude other leftist movements from this sort of new power-sharing agreement. For example, the communists. They're heavily excluded from the new government and they're actually persecuted by the revolutionary generals. And, you know, of course, as we said, Mexico established very a very sort of warm relationship with the Soviet Union. And something tells me they weren't fully aware of the fact that there was an assassin coming to kill Trotsky. I don't, I don't think they gave direct authorization for it or anything to that effect. But they weren't too phased that it happened. You know, in, in the grand scheme of things... They had a very reliable trading partner that was treating Mexico very well 
and that was the Soviet Union, you know, they weren't being exploited like they normally had been, if it even weighed on their minds at all. And I don't think it did, to be honest, with these Mexican generals. It does still speak to the fact that there were fault lines in the Mexican, in this new revolutionary state. And of course, as we know, this new government, which goes by many names, but eventually becomes the PRI, the party of the institutional revolution, ends up becoming a neoliberal party. Now, that's a, long, a lot later down the track, but when these other leftist movements are excluded and this sole party is allowed to essentially run everything, you know, it, it invites corruption, it invites this sort of kind of, I guess, this sort of malaise. People don't really care what happens because this is the revolutionary government. Whatever they do must be in the best interest of the Mexican people. And so they get a lot of benefit of the doubt and a lot of leeway in what they do and it becomes very clear by the 60s that they're not really pursuing the revolutionary tradition anymore. I would like to highlight one man who did, um, and he was in not from 1934 to 1938, Lázaro Cárdenas. He was one of the generals, in fact, the last general of that sort of revolutionary tradition. And he was an incredibly progressive individual. He, for the first time, created an indigenous affairs cabinet or ministry in Mexico, he was the one who introduced a lot of exhibitions of Aztec art, of indigenous sort of cultural shows and that sort of thing into Mexican everyday life. He finished the land reform, so he actually allocated vast tracts of land to the peasantry. He created collectives. Um, he authorised the creation of you know, not only of agricultural collectives, but other rural collectives to employ up to 60,000 people in a span of just four years. And most importantly, he signed the Mexican Energy Expropriation Act. And this, this is significant because what it does is it creates Pemex or Petróleos Mexicanos, which is the state-owned energy and oil company. And it says that Mexico, again, is the Mexican government, the Mexican state, has the sole right to use, exploit, sell, do whatever with Mexico's oil wealth. And of course, Mexico has immense oil wealth. And this was really being discovered for the first time in the 1930s. In fact, it's one of the largest reserves of oil in the world. It's easily in the top 10, if not the top five, in terms of countries and how much oil they have. Yeah, this has a really significant place as a significant strain on the US government's relationship with Mexico. Of course, because all of their companies are expropriated. They lose all of their profits. This Pemex company, the state-owned Pemex, comes to control all oil in Mexico. But of course, as we were saying, this is a short-lived period, this 1920 to 1940, when these revolutionary generals are in charge. Once they die, and once they're out of power, the bureaucrats of the party very quickly turn to the right. So they wouldn't dare touch some of these key laws, like the energy reform, because Mexicans are very proud of that. It's sort of a very significant moment when they stood up to the United States and to foreign companies. But they begin to privatise education and healthcare in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. They begin to sort of remove some of the guarantees from the land reform so that larger businessmen can begin to buy land off peasants or force them off their land. And wealth and corruption begins to sort of permeate the party. It permeates the PRI. The United States invests a lot of money in compromising certain members of the government. You know, it gets to the point where people can see very clearly that by the late 60s, this so-called revolutionary government is nothing of the sort. It's not quite neoliberal, but it's, it's a corrupt sort of kleptocratic state 
just like the one that Porfirio Diaz ran. And this comes to a head in 1968 with the Tlatelolco massacre, where the Mexican government invests millions of dollars in trying to get the Olympics to be hosted in Mexico City. And you have thousands of people protesting in the streets because they're saying, well, you're going to spend millions of dollars on the Olympics, but you won't even spend any money on education for our children or on healthcare for our children or to make sure that we have secure jobs, that we don't have to go to the informal economy. In 1968, the Mexican government authorizes the police and the military to kill these protesters. And that's what becomes known as the Tlatelolco Massacre. We don't know how many are dead. The government says officially 300 to 400 protesters were killed, but more progressive movements claim that up to 1,000 people were killed or up to 900 to 1,000 people were, were killed by the military and the police force. And, you know, it, it becomes what is called the Mexican Dirty War and, or the La Guerra Sucia, which is what happened in Chile and Argentina when the right-wing dictatorships came to power and they persecuted these progressive movements. That's what ends up happening in Mexico. Um, now, obviously, there's no coup or anything of the sort, but the same sort of military persecution and police persecution of progressive movements, of student movements, indigenous groups, all takes place between the 60s and, the, and going up into the 80s. If we keep on going, by the late 70s, the Mexican government has implemented a proper neoliberal reform. So they've done away, again, again, they do not touch the energy sector at this point because uh, it's just a no-go zone for, for most Mexican politicians. So they don't touch the energy sector, but most else is privatised. It becomes a really, really terrible situation for a lot of Mexicans. And the economy, you know, contrary to what neoliberals wanted or, or what they were professing would happen, tanks. Because after the Mexican government privatizes the banks, the, the Mexican banks and the people who run the Mexican banks just go on a spending spree and they sort of just, you know, take money, impose exorbitant sort of interest rates on everyday Mexicans. A lot of them end up getting close to bankruptcy. And because a lot of Mexicans just stop going to deposit their money in the banks because they don't trust them. So the Mexican government, in a pretty embarrassing U-turn, has to renationalize a couple of their own banks to save the economy. Because they've also devalued the peso by the early 80s, which really significantly reduces the purchasing power of everyday Mexicans. So they have to spend way more to buy way less in terms of food and medicine. You know, you have a government that is increasingly detached from the everyday people. And the PRI is just seen as now a crony capitalist neoliberal party. This sort of image is reinforced in the early 90s. So in 1992, Carlos Salinas, who is a, a Mexican leader, he reforms the Mexican constitution for the first time since 1917. And he allows for private sector uh, activity in all sectors except the energy sector. Again, he does, they do not touch the energy sector or the oil sector, but everything else is open slather for private industry, like illegally um, as of this point. 1994, the PRI government signs the NAFTA agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Now, this is a critical moment. So this is an agreement between Mexico, Canada, and the United States that is essentially essentially turns Mexico into sort of like neoliberal experiment, really, and sort of this like cash cow for the United States. 
So all of the subsidies on Mexican industry are virtually eliminated. Environmental laws are taken away almost completely. Labor laws are severely, severely diluted to the point where working conditions are among the worst in, in Latin America, if not the world. And U.S. companies and U.S. products are given preferential pricing and preferential treatment in the Mexican market. So it essentially becomes a money-making machine for the United States, to a lesser extent, Canada, but Canada also ends up becoming a little bit of a power for U.S. companies too, not to the same extent as Mexico. This causes estimates say one over one million Mexican peasants or campesinos lose their job because of this. So they they just can't compete with the new competition from North American agribusiness. And what happens is in 1994, that same year, we have the Zapatista uprising in 1994. Uh, in the southern state of Chiapas, which is majority indigenous, and they essentially have seized control of the state, of that state of Chiapas. They claim they're creating a, an indigenous peasants collectivist society, horizontal power structures, so there's not like a president or anything, it's collective decision making. They end up fighting a really bloody war against the Mexican military and they win. And they claim that the Mexican government is not allowed to sort of interfere at all in Chiapas state. And now the Mexican government has since been able to reassert a bit of control over some of the largest settlements, but the vast majority of the state of Chiapas to this day cannot be governed by the Mexican government because the Zapatistas control it so totally. And it's a really inspiring example. I mean, women are treated incredibly well. You know, domestic violence and that sort of thing is is punished really harshly by the Zapatistas. Um, there's collectivist agriculture. They don't permit any sort of foreign enterprise or commercial activity in their areas. It's all sort of self-sustaining. And they are, they do say they're inspired directly by the example of Emiliano Zapata from the Mexican Revolution and his land reform and his land reform project. That's one of the key sort of ideas behind the Zapatista movement, which is really important. It does show that there is serious dissatisfaction with neoliberalism in Mexico and with the PRI government. And, you know, we can't forget that the PRI up to this point has ruled Mexico essentially really like since 1917, if not earlier, that it's been this one party and some call it the perfect dictatorship for that reason. Even though it's technically not a dictatorship, this one party has won every single election and just dominates politics. But that comes to an end in 2000. For the first time, the PRI loses to the PAN or the Party of National Action. Now, unfortunately, you would hope that they would be better than the PRI, but they're actually worse, if that was even possible. So the PAN emerged in the late 80s, chiefly in the northern states, as a far-right Catholic movement. So a far-right, heavily supported by the Catholic Church, and chiefly made up of businessmen with ties to the United States. And these are businessmen who maybe, who chiefly weren't sort of linked into the party machinery of the PRI. So they didn't always get the same perks or benefits of PRI affiliated businessmen. And they essentially create a party to assert their own capitalist interests in Mexico. And they defeat the PRI in 2000, in the 2000 elections. And they win again in 2006. And that's when they officially declare the war on drugs. So they take this hardline stance. Now, the drug crisis, I'll be very brief because it's, it's an incredibly complex issue in Mexico. It goes back a very long time, um, even to as far back as the 1930s. 
that it really develops in the 80s and the 90s, again, with the deregulation, with NAFTA driving a lot of people into poverty and desperation. It also coincides with the collapse of the Cali cartel in Colombia. The Mexican cartels are able to sort of fill the void. Um, there's a lot of prime land for producing heroin and marijuana. And again, the, the general neoliberal economics really encourages this sort of secretive, illicit trade. It go, gets increasingly violent, but it only becomes really violent after 2006, when the Mexican government and the US government announced the war on drugs in Mexico, and they begin their really sort of heavily combative militaristic approach to tackling the cartels, which may have worked, if not for the fact that a lot of businessmen and politicians in the Mexican government and in the US government have stakes in the drug trade. That's just the sad truth of the matter. The reason that it hasn't ended is because there are really powerful individuals, powerful neoliberal capitalists who make money off the drug trade or some component of the drug trade. And they do not want it to end, you know, whether it be the selling of arms into Mexico from the United States or whether it's the Mexican businessmen who actually have a stake in, in getting some of the profit from the drugs being sold in the U.S. There, there are people who want to make sure this continues. And there is evidence to suggest as well that the CIA trained some of these cartel leaders as sort of like anti-union or anti-Indigenous activist type people in the northern regions. They actually trained some of these criminal organisations to suppress these progressive movements that were re-emerging in the 90s after NAFTA. But a lot more research needs to be done on that. That's still a very sort of secretive, well-kept sort of part of the US role in Mexico. Can I bring you up to the present time in Mexico? What's happening at the moment and what do you see in the near future? As of 2018, Mexico had its one of its most major political shifts in recent history, and that was the overwhelming victory of AMLO and his left-wing Morena coalition. So AMLO comes from a very poor family in the southern state of Tabasco. He originally started off as a member of the PRI, hoping that he could rise in the ranks and make change from within. When that didn't work, he split off from the party and he created this Morena movement. He's a genuine politician. He's a, he's a humble man. He's a man of the people, so to speak. And he essentially wants to revive the revolutionary tradition of the 1920s and the 1930s. He promised that he was going to end the corruption in the government. He promised that he was going to make former presidents accountable for the corruption that they presided over during previous neoliberal governments, and he vowed to restore the prominence of the state in all economic activity. In fact, he outlined about 100 sort of basic promises, and to date, he's actually achieved 98 of them, which is really astonishing. So just to label some of the things he's done, he's created a constitutional law that allows ex-presidents to be charged and investigated for corruption. He also made corruption a crime for the first time. It actually wasn't a criminal offence in Mexico up until uh, 2019. He's instituted this policy of Republican austerity, that's what he calls it, of essentially cutting down the salaries of overpaid bureaucrats and sort of businessmen in the government, um, sort of weeding out the corrupt gerrymandering and money transferring within, within the government to make sure that it's actually going to educational healthcare, for example, and not people's pockets. And he's passing laws to restore the prominence of the Electricity Commission and the state oil company Pemex over the energy industry, because in 2014, laws were passed 
for the first time to target the energy industry, reprivatize it. He's trying to reverse that and once again make Mexico, essentially make sure that Mexico produces gasoline for its own people and doesn't have to import it from abroad because it makes no sense. He's also created a recall vote for the first time. So halfway through every Mexican president's term, including his, they'll now have to submit their presidency to a referendum of the people and the people vote on whether or not they want that president to continue. So that's a massive gamble. And clearly, you know, he is taking this issue of corruption and sort of integrity very seriously. Um, not to mention his dramatically increased social spending. For the first time ever, there's universal pensions for the elderly. There's universal pensions for uh, the disabled and for people, for single mothers, which is, and you know, they're unconditional cash transfers. There's no sort of interest. There's no strings attached. But what we can see here is here is a progressive Mexican nationalist, you know. He's very, very supportive of other progressive movements is supportive of the Cuban revolution, of Venezuela, of the new Peruvian government. I believe he has every intention of restoring Mexico to its former glory, if you want to say that, when it was an independent and a sovereign nation. The US has had a strained relationship with him, obviously, but they haven't been able to do a lot because he's actually very friendly with chiefly the military, which is um, a really sort of key component because they won't coup him because they recognise there's sort of some members of the military that are also sympathetic to this, you know, returning to the old days of when the, the generals could sort of look after Mexico and, and contribute to its well-being, which is interesting. And, of course, he's supported by progressive movements, by trade unions, by indigenous organisations. I have every sort of every confidence that AMLO is going to, he will win again, he will win his recall referendum next year, he will win the next election, or his party will, Things are looking very, very good for Mexico. And it's a great big thank you to Sasha Galiz-Lakakis for the time and research that he puts into these country profiles. And you can hear more of Sasha on the Latin American Update program on 3CR on Sunday mornings at 10.30. 2021. Film Festival Australia is back for 2021. This year's digital festival invites you to take a journey with a series of thought-provoking films, documentaries and shorts. Effort 21 invites you to explore the world and connect with environmental issues beyond the headlines. Take a journey into the deepest seas, up awe-inspiring mountains and into the lives of those fighting to save our planet. Running from October 14 to November 14, visit effa.org.au for more. The Environmental Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua.
just when it seems that the occupying Israeli government has no further ways to punish Palestinians, comes the decision to declare as terrorists six Palestinian civil human rights groups. Organisations and individuals around the world are appalled and asking their governments to condemn the decision and demand it be rescinded. We don't hold our breath for our government's actions. Nevertheless, the Australian Centre for International Justice circulated the Australian Human Rights Community Solidarity Statement, which was endorsed by many Australians. I spoke with Rowan Araf from the Australian Centre for International Justice and asked her first to identify the six organisations and the vital work they carry out in Palestine. The Israeli Defence Ministry, joined by other agencies of the State of Israel, issued designations according to a 2016 Israeli law, an anti-terrorism law, designating six Palestinian civil society and human rights organizations as so-called terrorist organizations. These organizations are the Defense for Children International Palestine. Now, DCI Palestine advocates for Palestinian children um, subject to a military court system. We know that the military court system has an approved, uh, a conviction rate rather of almost 100%. Al-Haq is the leading human rights legal center and organization in the West, in the occupied West Bank. And they've been around for 42 years. There's Ad-Damir, which is a prisoners' rights and supports organization. They support Palestinian political prisoners um, and have been also for over 30 years. There's also the Union of Agricultural Work Committees. Now, they support farmers resisting land grabs and other impacts of Israel's settler colonialism on agriculture and livelihoods. There's also the Bissan Center for Research and Development. They've also been around for over 20 years, and they advocate for civil rights, human rights, and socioeconomic rights. And finally, there's the Union of Palestinian Women's Committees. Now, they're a feminist and progressive grassroots Palestinian women's organization. They're the six civil society and Palestinian human rights organizations that have been targeted in this latest outrageous decision of the Israeli government. How does the Israeli government justify this action? You know, I think it's baseless accusations and allegations that have, you know, it's a campaign that has been waged by the Israeli government and its proxies for a number of years. They are penalizing and criminalizing these organizations for exposing the catalog of Israeli abuses. And so I think this is uh, what really needs to be seen as the as the real reason that Israel is, has now targeted the work, the critical human rights work of the, these organizations um, by trying to distract them from the really important documenting and advocacy that they do in Palestine and internationally, of course. And so this is really the reason that Israel has now targeted these organizations. And I don't think it will stop there. How will it distract them? As we've seen, I think in the last week, it's distracted them in a way that they have now had to uh, wage a campaign themselves to seek the support of ordinary people and civil society around the world and governments and the international community to speak up. I mean, I think the main concern is that the consequences of this new measure 
um, as I said, it's going to criminalize their work and outlaw their work, but it's going to license Israeli occupation authorities to close their offices, seize their assets, arrest and imprison their staff. And it's also going to prohibit funding and public expression of support for their work. Now, a lot of these organizations are heavily reliant on outside sources of funding, particularly from European governments. So this is an attack on their work uh, that is supposed to target their donors. I mean, this is, as I said, an ongoing campaign. Israel's proxies have for many years tried to target the institutional donors and government donors of these organizations by baseless allegations and, and accusations that we're seeing today. So I think uh, the distraction is, of course, that, you know, they are documenting occupation abuses and apartheid crimes in Palestine, and now they have had to shift track to try and defend the, the, the work that they do. Um, and so I think that's the huge distraction that they face now. And it's, again, not just a distraction, it's a really serious attempt at criminalizing their work, and there are serious grave risks for the safety of the staff, but also of the organizations themselves. I mean, <clears throat> these organizations, it's important to say, they've already had their offices ransacked and property confiscated, equipment such as computer and evidence taken and not returned. Um, this just We just saw this happen a few months ago with DCI Palestine, and it's happened with the other organizations as well. So this is the really the nature of the Israeli beast that we're looking at, the occupation in, um, in its uh, exposed. Um, now it's targeting human rights defenders and human rights organizations and Palestinian civil society. Well, there's been a call out to international groups and also countries. What's been the response? I, I think civil society has really responded um, strongly. Uh, there has been statements from different organizations and partners all around the world who have, you know, been outraged by the decision that this is an attack on themselves. In fact, a really strong statement from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International said that this is an attack not just on the Palestinian uh, human rights movement, but on the international human rights movement itself. And um, I think this is really the tenor of the response that we've seen internationally. I think um, governments have been slow to respond, uh, but we did see a really interesting statement from European, organ uh, European governments yesterday, uh, including the Belgian, I'm just going to read it to you here. The Belgian foreign minister said that they take these decisions, these accusations of terrorism seriously, and they cannot be used to, to prevent legitimate ac activities. Further, she said, previous accusations turned out to be unfounded. We will ask for clarifications. And importantly, she said civil society has an important role in promoting human rights and humanitarian law. Their work is more and more under pressure. They deserve our support. And I think this is a really interesting contrast to the response we've had from the Australian government so far, which has uh, yesterday we uh, saw a response to questions from Senator Rice at Senate Estimates by Minister for Foreign Affairs, Maurice Payne, who said that they've just sought clarification and further information from Israeli authorities. And I think that that's not enough, that the Australian government is just waiting for this so-called information um, before responding and taking action. And while that's a good step, I think it needs to be a stronger response from the Australian government. The Australian government purports to support human rights defenders around the world. So it needs to support Palestinian human rights defenders from this really dangerous attack on their work. But when we're looking at the, the recent past, it seems that it doesn't matter who 
reacts to what the Israeli government has done, they seem to just go on their merry way and just keep on doing it because they know that they've got support in certain countries of the world who don't care what seems to be whatever Israel does, they can just do it. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, it's a brazen act. And we said in our solidarity statement, the Australian Human Rights Community Solidarity Statement, that it represents an emboldened Israel that systematically violates the rights of Palestinians with impunity. But more importantly, going to your uh, your point, Jan, that it's buttressed by the international community who have for decades challenged, failed to challenge rather, um, and confront Israel's human rights abuses by imposing meaningful and effective me- measures that are available at their disposal to respond to these egregious abuses um, by Israeli occupation authorities. And we say that this includes successive Australian governments who enter into agreements that foster Israeli defence industry partnerships. And of course, how can't we forget Australia's abysmal voting record and interventions in international forums, such as at the Human Rights Council, um, at the United Nations Security Council and General Assembly, and of course, last year's intervention at the International Criminal Court to try and prevent an investigation into international crimes in Palestine from proceeding. And I'd imagine that you can't think of another developed country that gets away with what Israel gets away with. No, I mean I, I, I mean, I can't because, you know, Israel has portrayed itself as a democratic, you know, Western government with, with a rule of law. And I think this is really now the false image that others are beginning to see and that it is really acting in concert and alike with regimes such as Bahrain, Egypt, Belarus, You know, I think this is like for like. They are exposing themselves for the authoritarian regime that they really are. And we have to keep remembering that it's the the citizens of Palestine who are going to suffer from this, the women, the children, those suffering human rights abuses, if they don't have those groups keeping an eye, a watching brief on what's happening to them. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's the main, um, that's the really important and critical role that these organisations play. But the fact that at least three of these organisations, which are ACIJ, Australian Centre for International Justice, they're our partners. Um, we worked with them together earlier this year in a joint submission to DFAP, which I know you and I have talked about before on your show. These organisations, DCI Palestine, Al-Haq and Al-Damir, they have provided uh, critical legal support for Palestinian victims at the International Criminal Court. They've provided evidence, they've provided legal analysis and submissions to the Office of the Prosecutor. Of course, we know there's um, an investigation into the situation in Palestine at the International Criminal Court. And they provide that critical support and monitoring of Israeli abuses um, and occupation abuses. But also, uh, they monitor the abuses of the Palestinian authorities, uh, such as the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, but also Hamas authorities uh, for Palestinian human rights organizations that operate in Gaza. None of these groups, I should say, these six groups, they're all based in the occupied West Bank and not in occupied Gaza. But of course, the relationships and links between the t- between all of these organizations are, are important and fundamental for Palestinian civil society as a whole. Well, you've put out your statement to individuals and organizations what can you do next? 
Well, we've provided, we've already sent the statement to DFAT and Foreign Minister Maurice Payne to seek a response and a timely public response from the Australian government and a condemnation. We've also requested as one of the demands that they also, in condemning this decision, they also demand that Israeli authorities reverse and rescind the designations immediately. So that is the first step. We're still collecting um, signatures for the petition. So the open letter is available for anyone else to sign and we'll hopefully present that petition to government at a later date. But we think that this campaign will likely need to grow, particularly if the international community does not pressure Israel into rescinding these um, designations. And we're here to really just amplify the voices and the work, the critical work of these human rights organizations. Um, at ACIJ, we're really proud to partner with these organizations. They have been incredibly professional their work is of a really high level and uh, we are really proud to continue working with them. And I think one of the things we tried to highlight in the statement is the implications for Australian organisations and uh, Australian individuals. I think the response we've seen is that many organisations and individuals here in Australia support, follow and collaborate with these organisations. What are the implications for them? What are the implications for Palestinians, um, Palestinian Australians or Palestinians who uh, live inside Israel-Palestine and support the work of these organisations? Are they going to be caught up in these draconian measures that Israel imposed? One thing I wanted to highlight is that, you know, this is the Israeli authorities have used a 2016 domestic law and have applied it to civilians in the occupied territory, which is a violation of occupation law. It's a violation of the Hague regulations, which applies to the occupied Palestinian territory. And this is another terrible manifestation of the international community's failure to apply um, and enforce rather um, international, international law. And where there are violations of international law, as we know that there are litany by the State of Israel, but in particular, regard this one where there is an, a, a violation by an applying domestic statute into occupied territory against civilians by the occupying power. It's a violation. It's a straight, in, uh, it's a straight out violation of, of occupation law. So, you know, we're still buoyed by the support from the Australian human rights community and civil society. There are a huge number of organizations that have signed on so far that what I mean is that they have a huge number of memberships members and public support. We've got the support of the Australian uh, Council of Trade Unions, the ACTU. We've got the peak body of aid and development organisations um, abroad. That's ACFID, the Australian Council for International Development. We have activist First Nation groups such as Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Gamilaroi Next Generation and Fighting in Solidarity, in Solidarity Towards Treaties. We have peace groups, um, community groups, and uh, the International Commission of Jurists, for example. We have Australian Lawyers for Human Rights, uh, Arab associations, Muslim groups, but really a, a wide spectrum, I think, of um, civil society. And since we've launched the petition, there's been you know, more <laughs> than a thousand signatures so far in the space of a day. So I think we're really, really encouraged by this strong support from Australians and Australian civil society for Palestinian civil society and human rights organisations. And important to keep that pressure up. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, this is why we do global solidarity work. And there are important links to the fact that our statement highlighted the real complicity of this, of successive Australian governments in propping up um, Israeli violations of international law and Israel's human rights abuses against Palestinians. And I think that's important for everyone to know that, um, you know, our government, our successive Australian governments are complicit in the abuses against Palestinians. Thank you so much, Jan, and thanks for everyone listening. It's congratulations to Rowan Arif and the great work that the Australian Centre for International Justice carries out. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.